Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Dead Zone, chapters 6 through 12. Let's start the show. Johnny Smith wakes up from a four and a half year coma and much has changed, both in the larger world and in his personal life. Johnny has a long road back to recovery, and along the way, he demonstrates a strange ability to see events, the successful surgery of his nurse's son, a fire at the home of his physical therapist, the existence of his doctor's presumed dead mother, and the location of his ex-girlfriend's lost wedding ring. Johnny isn't sure what to think of this ability, but his ultra-religious mother sees it as a gift from God. She urges him to use this power to do his duty before she dies. So, like, basically, Johnny is like one of the Blues Brothers. He's on a mission, mission from, God. from God. Actually, Johnny is a man out of time, wouldn't you say? Definitely. As you just said, the world has changed around him. And even though it's only four years, that's a long way to go and not know what has happened. Especially, well, we were talking about this before. I was going to say, especially in this time period of the mid-70s. But I think you could look at any five-year period and be like, wow, things have changed a lot in those five years. But King seems to be very interested in, in sort of what would happen if somebody missed out on five years. And especially a time when a lot was happening in U.S. politics, at least, where the war in Vietnam had escalated and then the U.S. basically lost and got out of Vietnam. Um, Watergate happens. Nixon resigns. His vice president, Agnew, has to resign because of a bribery scandal. And there's an unelected president, Ford, who's in, in office. And then all the personal stuff in Johnny's life that have happened. His ex-girlfriend gets married. His mother has sort of gone off the deep end when it comes to religion. His father has aged considerably. And King has been interested in the politics part of this. Like, if you remember our coverage of The Stand, we talked a lot about how The Stand seemed to be a reaction to the things that were happening in the 70s. And this sort of built upon it. Yeah, and don't forget the strange technological advances like flare pens and <laughs> sodium lights yeah, on the streets. He's totally freaked out by those things too, yes. <laughs> and not only that, but like hairstyles, right? Like he was of an age where the young people wore their hair long, you know, coming out of the late 60s. But now he's got doctors who have, you know, hair down to their collars and wearing very bright zoot suit type of uh, clothing. And he's just sort of freaked out by that. Like, oh, wait. The straights are wearing those clothes now, too. This is this is really strange. So he does seem out of time. And I think that's a big theme of this section of the book. Yeah. And King has forever been obsessed with the JFK assassination. And he's mentioned it over and over again in his books. And he even wrote a whole book about what if you could go back in time and prevent the assassination <laughs> of JFK. But he calls it out here. So, so yeah, King didn't need to mention the JFK assassination because it wasn't something that Johnny missed, but he still did because he's king. Yes, because he's king. <laughs> right. But this whole idea of a man out of time sort of escalates this story. We've talked about how even with his name, John Smith, he's supposed to represent every man. 
Mm -hmm. But here he is as an everyman who's totally out of step with everything else that is going on. And so we can relate to him, but he can't relate to anything else. And and what do, where does that leave him? Like as a he's already been described a little bit as a Nickabod Crane type of person, right? Like Rip Van Winkle, Nickabod Crane. Like remember in the first part, mm. we talked about how he was pacing back and forth like that. I mean, he, here it comes to life where he literally is Rip Van Winkle waking up from a long rest. And also the Jekyll and Hyde as well with the two halves of the mask. Yep. And the biggest thing about all this, you know, losing these four and a half years is that he's lost his true love. Yeah. That Sarah is gone from him. And both of them seem to have regrets about it, but neither one of them is willing to blame the other or blame what what's happening. Like, they just seem to think like, okay, John's like, you wouldn't have waited for me. I understand. Like a four and a half years is a long time. You can't just, especially when you thought I was going to die and- and she misses the fact that she couldn't be with John, but she's also like, I've got a husband now and I love him and I've got a kid. And so what are you supposed to do in that situation? Yeah, they both acknowledge the fact that they're in a scenario that they are not to blame. Every decision that each of them has made or couldn't make because like Johnny was in a coma, he wasn't making any decisions, but there's nobody to blame for that. Anybody would have probably made the same decision. And so it's totally understandable, but it sucks is really what it boils down yes. to. Johnny still feels exactly the same way about Sarah as he did the night he went into the coma, because in many ways for him, no time has passed, right? Right. So of course, he still has the same emotional connection with her. But Sarah still pretty clearly loves him and would have happily waited for him if she knew that there was an end date to his coma. At the same time, like you said, totally understandable. Nobody thought he was ever going to come out of this coma. It's too open-ended. And also unlikely that anything would ever come around. So it's unreasonable. Even Johnny's parents were telling her, we appreciate how you feel, but we are like giving you permission to move on with your life. Right. It's just too much to ask of anybody. Don't ask it of yourself. Yeah. I love how when John comes out of the coma, there's these little details that King plants that show how intelligent John is. So even though he's, you know, been in a coma for four and a half years. He wakes up and he notices, like, I don't have any cards. I'm in a I'm in a hospital room, but where are all the get well cards that I should have? And then he's like, I see one one picture, but it's yellow and faded and starting to curl like it's older. Hmm. And these are all things that he knows right away, like something's not right. Like if I had just been out for a short period of time, there would be a lot more here, but there's not. And so he picks up on that right away and he can immediately tell that he's out of time. But like you said, for him, it's as if just some time has passed. Like, was I out a day, a week? No, it's four and a half years. Holy shit. Uh -huh. <laughs> so in the recap, you mentioned how Johnny has these new powers mm. that seem to be a result of being in the coma or coming out of the coma. But I kept asking myself, did Johnny need to be in a coma to get his powers? You know, is this the superhero origin story part of the book? where he gets his powers because he goes into a coma and then miraculously is revived from that coma. Okay, I'll buy it. Sure. But it seems like he already had these powers before the coma. He was doing the whole Wheel of Fortune thing. He fell on the ice when he was a kid. Maybe that gave him the powers. I don't know. It just feels like there's um, a little bit of redundancy mm. here. And I don't quite see yet where King's going with this. I love the idea of the coma giving him powers, but I feel like he should have had nothing like that before the coma to just clean it up a bit. What do you think? 
Yeah, I can see where you're coming from because it does seem like Spider-Man got bit by a spider and then he got bit by a second spider. And the, the first spider is the one that gave him the ability to crawl. And it's the second spider that gave him a spider sense or something, right? Like, no, nah, uh -huh. you could just have one spider bite him and have it all happen. So it does seem a little bit redundant, but it does give King this opportunity to do some pseudoscience, right? And have this whole explanation where the doctor thinks, oh, well, you know, maybe you had had an accident once before and that the scar tissue on your brain is what helped you with the scar tissue on the second time. And that's why you're able to recover and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Or you could just, you know, not have to explain it away like that. So I will say that the 70s was full of pseudoscience type stuff with ESP and Bermuda Triangles and hmm. cryptids and stuff. And that was sort of in the air. So maybe King is picking that up as well. But I can see where you're coming from, where it's not as clean. I think it's probably the coma is less important for the power aspect of Johnny as it is as a way to get him out of sync. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's the more important thing and that you're right, that King could have cleaned it up by saying, hey, he didn't get his powers until he was in a coma, but instead he just sort of escalates the powers after the coma. And really the narrative purpose of the coma is less about his powers, I think, and more to sort of set up this tension between Johnny, who was in love, still is in love, but doesn't have the girl anymore, is also, you know, in need of money and isn't sure how he's going to get it. Uh, his parents have aged and have sort of freaked out and moved on in a way. And so has his girlfriend. And so has the world around him. And in that way, it's a little bit like the Dark Tower, right? The world has moved mm. on. And, and Johnny Smith, who could also be described as Long, tall, and ugly. Long, tall, and ugly, like uh, our good friend Roland, is also a man out of time, much like Roland is. So, Yeah. Or I guess maybe sticking with the Spider-Man metaphor, he had his spider superpowers, and then he met up with the symbiote, and he got the black <laughs> suit. So his spider powers made him the perfect host yes. for the symbiote. And then continuing with the Spider-Man theme here, is this new power that he has, is it a curse? Or is it a responsibility? Because he has great power now, right? Yeah, I mean, as a huge, huge Spider-Man fan, like, this is what I picked up right away, right? I thought you were going to tell me as a huge Spider-Man fan, please stop talking about Spider-Man. No, I, I mean, I think that that's going to be our next podcast, isn't it? Going through and, oh, and discussing Spider-Man. Okay, yeah. but, but yeah, this is very much a, it seems to be presented as a curse to us, right? Mm. Johnny wins a whole bunch of money on the Wheel of Fortune. And as he does so, he's starting to alienate his girlfriend who gets sick, and then he's immediately in a car crash. Are those things connected? Is his fate as a cop? You can argue about that. And then he's in a coma, and he comes back, and he's got more of it. And this curse seems to continue on. Like, he's got horrible injuries from this car accident that he has to work through. Yeah. But along the way, he's also meeting these people that he sees into their lives. The physical therapist, the nurse, the doctor. And these aren't pleasant stories, right? They bring out really some terrible things, like the woman's house is burning down. Mm -hmm. The doctor has been estranged from his mother since World War II and then finds out she's alive but can't really talk to her because she's lived this whole life and doesn't really know him. And he's glad that his mother's alive, the doctor, but did he really want to know it? And has it, it does it change his life? I mean, these are all things that are not necessarily like, hey, I reunited you with your long lost brother and everyone's happy. Like, I don't think that this power actually settles things. Even that journalist he meets. That was a, a horrific experience. That was horrific, yeah. right? It's it talked So like, on the one hand, this is a, a great power, but it's causing pain still. Mm. And John doesn't seem to like it. He's trying to hide it as best as he can, right? Because he and the doctor are concerned that this is going to get out. 
So he does have to sort of hide it, much like a secret identity with Peter Parker worried about his family and friends. But on the other hand, I think John also sees it as a little bit of a responsibility. So when the physical therapist's house is burning down, he's willing to go and make a phone call in front of a bunch of other nurses to make sure the house doesn't burn down. And in doing so, he's actually exposed himself and started all these rumors, and that leads down this other path. So there is this sort of curse and responsibility that he's dealing with, and I think King does a good job in this section of of playing around with that. Yeah, and there's a big part of this book that is about religion and having a soul and your motivations and how or if you should help people. And the responsibility part comes directly from his mother, and his mother is presented as somebody who has completely lost it, right? She has always been a religious person, but Johnny's accident made her retreat into a form of religious madness. And what we learn at the end in her final moments, the final words she says to Johnny in chapter 12 are, this is your responsibility. You need to use this for the right reasons and you need to help people. You're on a mission from God, right? (laughs) Right. And he's the type of person who's going to take that as almost like a directive. His mom's kind of right. She got there in the worst way, in all the wrong ways, but she's still not wrong on that. Like, this is a responsibility. You need to use this for good. If you can help people, if you can keep their house from burning down, if you can help somebody find out what happened to a lost relative, you have to do it, even if it hurts. Yeah, and I I have a feeling that it's better that this power is in John's hands than it is his mother's hands, Mm -hmm. because I think for what her interpretation and reading of religion is probably very different from John's. And so were she to have that power, you don't know where it's going to go, right? She already believes like UFOs are going to come take her away potentially, or only certain types of religion are right. Like she's very devout in her understanding of religion, but she is very easily misled Mm. by people who might be scamming her, right? And that's this other theme that comes through this is like, Johnny's mom is a victim of these scams that are happening, right? Send your money and and you'll be saved. And here's here's a piece of the true cross you can buy and donate money to this and you'll be saved, all these other things. And when Johnny reveals his powers, the reporters think it's a scam as well. Yeah, They're trying to trip him up because why would somebody pretend to do this? ESP is not for real. And Johnny's able to actually show it. And when he does, everyone sort of backs off like, whoa, whoa, we don't want any part of this. Um, because now that we know it's real, that's even more scary, right? Uh-huh. We don't want any part of it. And that sort of further alienates Johnny. It's not just he's out of time at this point, but now he's got these powers that people are like, oh, I don't want any part of that. Um, but I do think that, as you said, John is a good enough person that he's going to keep the promise to his mom. He's just going to interpret it differently. Like, what does it mean to have the duty? And I have a feeling, having read this book before, that this is going to play into the future of this. Like, what is this tension between how can I use my powers for good and who determines what that is? I mean, that's a theme of eleven twenty two sixty three as well, right? Yeah, yeah. How far are you willing to go to do what you think is the right thing? And how do you determine what the right thing is? And I think John is sort of at that point. And he also has made this promise, this vow to his mother, his dying mother, that he's going to do what's right. Now he's got to figure that out. Yeah. What is right? In addition to the religion part represented by John's mother, we're also in this part focused a lot on science and doctors. Mm -hmm. John spends most of this section going through some terrible rehab. Right. He, yeah, yeah. He, he wakes up and they were still like trying to manually exercise him so his limbs wouldn't atrophy too much. But there's only so much you can do for a bedridden coma patient. 
And so when he wakes up, he's obviously in pain, not only because he's been in a coma, but also he's in this horrible accident. Mm -hmm. And he can't walk. And so he's going to go through all these surgeries. And there's these two doctors. Dr. Wiesiak is the pleasant doctor who helps John and it becomes a friend to John. But this other doctor is very much all science, whereas John's mom is all religion. This guy's all science and says, you know, I don't believe in your ESP powers. I am really focusing on you as a physical specimen. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to get into any of the any of the craziness. I learned things in a book. I've applied them. And that's what is going to drive me. Yeah, basically, that doctor is all science. And by contrast, Johnny's mom is all religion. And Wyzak is like in the middle ground. And I think that's where King appreciates the position and he's sort of showing us this is the reasonable path in between those two extremes and that's why he makes Wyzak such a, an appealing character he's friendly he's kind he's supportive he's full of wonderful nuggets of wisdom he's generous with his time plus he seems to be a brilliant brain surgeon because in confidence Wyzak says that the other doctor is a mechanic of the brain. He's cut the brain to pieces with a scalpel and found no soul. Therefore, there is none. Like the Russian astronauts who circled the earth and did not see God, it is the empiricism of the mechanic, and a mechanic is only a child with superior motor control. (laughs) I know that this is just King speaking through the character, but he's kind of saying, like, if you can't find the soul or assume that there is a soul before you start cutting up a brain... You might be in the wrong line of work. Right. And he gives Johnny the appreciation of like, you know, Johnny's a really smart guy and he's well-educated and he's been through this incredible traumatic experience. And now he's this man out of time with a superpower, but he's also the most grounded character in this book and he has a soul. So we can have confidence that he'll make the right choices for the right reasons. We hope. We hope, right. He's definitely not going to approach it like a computer. Yeah. There does seem to be like this black and white essence for both the doctor and his mom, right? Mm -hmm. God is good. The devil is bad. And on the other side, your brain is working this way and I'm going to fix it this way. You're basically a machine that I can, I can do what I need to do to make it happen. And I don't see you as a patient as much as I see you as a subject who's going to be anonymized and put in my next medical journal article. Yep. And Wiesak is that happy medium. Hey, I believe in science, but I have an open mind on things. And also, I like music and I like good cars and I'm an interesting person and I'm a, I'm a character. And so he does represent that, that middle ground. He's the, he's the one who, if you noticed, Jay and I remember his name. We don't remember the other doctor's name. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and, we, and that's because he's the interesting character and King sets him up that way. I think that that's also going to play into this idea that John is not going to be faced with black and white choices. He's going to be faced with these gray moral choices that he's going to have to make. And speaking of, you know, not black and white and and gray choices, welcome to the 70s where there's people like Richard Nixon walking around, right? Where like, not only is he the guy who authorized Watergate, but he's also the guy who opened up China. And Johnny recognized that like, wait, he's the guy who increased relationships with China? Like these characters are not all black and white. And I think that that's going to be a big part going forward. Indeed. Sean, what about any Dark Tower thinnies in this section of the book? So, Jay, I've got one that is right when John is coming out of the coma at the beginning of this section. Mm -hmm. At first, we see the situation from the nurse's eyes and from John's roommate's eyes. First, there's like a cancer patient in his room. 
And then there's a, a guy who's had a heart attack in his room. But then we switch and we get it from Johnny's point of view. And we see him sort of floating around. And he, he says, it began to seem that he was not in a hallway at all anymore, but in a room, almost in a room separated from it by the thinnest of membranes, a sort of placental sac, like a baby waiting to be born. Hmm. Uh, separated by the thinnest of membranes. It actually says thinnest. That's an th actual thinny, right? Like he's in this sort of place between one world and the next. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. While it's not exactly Dark Tower related, it's this idea that there are other worlds that you can be a part of. And John is in this other world as a, some might say a soul, mm -hmm. but he's coming back into our physical world. I think that that is a thinny. I think that when he was in the coma, he was in like Todash space. There you go. Getting his superpowers. <laughs> and now he steps back through that thinness of membranes and here he is, the man out of time with ESP year. Do you have anything? I've got one. <laughs> it's always the lamest ones that <laughs> I find. When we learn when Sarah married her husband, who is not Johnny, is Mr. Walt Hazlett. They got married on July 9th, 1972. And if you add up one and nine and seven and two, you get 19. Ah, yes, you do. <laughs> do you have any others? Yes. My last one is Dr. Wiesak is trying to test Johnny's brain activity and they put all these electrodes on him. And then he asks John to imagine in his mind certain items. So I think he imagines like something sitting on a car and he's able to picture that in his mind. And as such, the EKG can see sort of brain activity. And the fourth item that they asked John about is to picture a picnic table. And as much as he tries, John cannot picture a picnic table in his mind. He can picture his dad on the grill with an apron that has a silly saying. He can picture hot dogs. He can picture a nice grass. But he can't picture the picnic table. And they start to deduce that this might be a dead zone in his mind, the title of the book. Oh. But what's interesting is they continue through this process, and there's 20 items I think they're going to go through. And so he has problems on the fourth one, but then he gets the rest of them right up until the 19th item, a rowboat lying at the foot of a street sign. Who thinks these things up, Johnny wondered, and it happened again. So the second instance of this dead zone is on the 19th item. Very, very interesting. I love it. Yeah. And just to remind folks, this book precedes all the Dark Tower books. Yeah. Yeah. And it is one of the books that I think started the pattern that King eventually cottoned onto that he was like accidentally obsessed with the number 19. Yep. Well, good news in this section, Jay, there is a lot of yucking it up moments. <laughs> Shall I start us off? Go for it. All right. The yucky moment I wanted to call out is the line, he had found himself remembering a picnic in the country when he had been seven or eight, sitting down and putting his hand in something warm and slippery. He looked around and seen that he had put his hand into the maggoty remains of a woodchuck that had lain under a laurel bush all that hot August. Ugh. Yeah, not great. <laughs> no maggots for me, please. At least it was warm. I, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. So we mentioned how John's having all these surgeries. And one of the first ones he goes through is to have ligaments in his legs lengthened via 
like some new technology. It's going to be synthetic ligaments added to his legs. And for whatever reason, he's only under a local anesthetic and not a general one. And they allow John to watch the surgery if he so desires. And he's able to look in a mirror to see the doctor operating on him. This is a Dr. Ruop. And John says, with the forceps, the nurse handed Ruop something that looked like a bundle of thin wires twisted together. Ruop picked them delicately out of the air with tweezers. Like an Italian dinner, Johnny thought. And look at all that spaghetti sauce. That was what made him feel ill, and he looked away. And yeah, I can only imagine like having your legs splayed open and having people sort of grabbing pieces of things coming in and things coming out and realize like, oh yeah, that's all going to go inside my body. That would make me feel ill as well. Yeah. I wouldn't enjoy that view. I would ask them to take the mirror out of the room. So my kids just got their wisdom teeth out and I wasn't in the room with them, but I was telling my uncle about it. And my uncle said, oh yeah, when I got my wisdom teeth out, I I asked to be under a, a local anesthetic so I could see what was happening. And I watched it and the dentist brought out a chisel and a hammer. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think I would want to see my dentist taking out my wisdom <laughs> teeth. So I'll pass on that. But yeah, I'm not I'm not ready for that type of stuff. It's far too late, but maybe we should have put a trigger warning. <laughs> Do we have to have a trigger warning for yucking it up? I, I think like the fact that we have yeah, the yucking may, it up. Maybe yucking it up is the trigger yeah, warning. Yes. We've got a whole little bit for it, right? Yeah. We even, we even have a jingle. Yeah. If you, if you can't get past, if you can get past the jingle, you can get past that. We got a jingle and we got timestamps. Yeah. I think we're covered. Well, Jay, it's been a little bit, but we're going to catch up on some thank you to our patrons who support our show and get bonus podcast episodes. They do that by visiting patreon.com slash two guys dark tower and Bill K joined at the apprentice level. And we want to thank Bill for continuing his support of this fine podcast. And we hope you're enjoying the bonus episodes, Bill. Yes. Thank you, Bill. And everybody else who's thinking about possibly becoming a patron. We have a lot of bonus episodes. We talk about a lot of fun things. If you want to check out more than what we put in the previews in our main feed, give it a little bit of a, a look. Yeah. Short stories, TV shows, movies, all sorts of stuff on the bonus episodes. Yep. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Next section is fun stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, fun stuff is always better than good stuff. <laughs> So we've already talked about how Johnny is a man out of time. I just want to talk about how, like, sometimes I feel like out of time reading this. So, you know, this story is set in the mid 70s, which, what, almost 50 years ago now at this point? Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of crazy to think this. One of Johnny's roommates in the hospital is a Mr. Sterrett. And Mr. Sterrett was recovering from a heart attack and was doing his 16 in intensive care. And doing his 16 is in quotes because that means a 16-day stay following a coronary, which was standard operation procedure. It sort of boggles my mind that somebody could be in a hospital for 16 days. There's no way an insurance company in 2022, 2023 would allow somebody who had a heart attack to stay in the hospital for 16 days unless they were on their deathbed. And Mr. Sterrett seems fine. Like he's grumbling and complaining and eating breakfast. And his insurance company would be like, yeah, you're fine. Go home. Uh-huh. We need this bed for seven other people. <laughs> yeah. I guess this is less fun <laughs> stuff than an indictment on our healthcare system here in the United States. <laughs> so the first item of fun stuff I wanted to call out is the reference to Jerusalem's lot. Mm. We're in King's backyard here in this playground of fictional and non-fictional main towns and cities. And uh, apparently when Johnny gets the call to go see his mother after her stroke, he needs to get to Cumberland General, and he knows exactly where it is. It's just above Jerusalem's lot. 
How do you like them apples? Yeah, maybe not drive through Jerusalem's lot though. Like, could you yes. like maybe bypass that? I don't know. I, I'm thinking is this has got to be one of the first crossovers then in his books, right? Because this is only his fourth book, and this is referencing his second book. Yeah, and the stand I sort of think is totally separate. I don't know if there was any direct connections to either of his other books in the, in the stand like that. So yeah, good find. And of course, this is the first Castle Rock story as well. Oh, yeah. I was sort of perplexed by this line, Jay, and it is after Sarah has spent the afternoon talking with Johnny, and he has a moment when he realizes he knows where Sarah's lost wedding ring is, and she is stunned that he even knows about it because the only ones who know she lost her ring were her and her husband, and yet he's able to precisely identify where the lost ring is, and she finds it in a suitcase. And then... As she's thinking about Johnny and as she's thinking about this ring and her feelings for Johnny and all that, she sees herself in the mirror and she sees herself as flushed and hot and, let's face it, gang, sexy. And I was wondering, is this Sarah talking to herself? Because we're sort of in her interior for a lot of that. Or is this King sort of breaking the fourth wall? And like, let's face it, gang, is really a, a call out to his constant readers like, hey, Check out this Sarah. She's a hotsy-totsy, isn't she? She's a real hotsy-totsy. I don't know what to make of this exactly, because I saw this as clearly this is the narrator describing Sarah's uh, appearance and her thoughts, not directly addressing us, the reader. But the word gang is really, really strange here, which is what tripped you up. Right. It is like breaking the fourth wall as the narrator, because King has done this. We've talked about how he'll sort of change narrative style and sort of directly address the reader and like, let me give you a summary. We'll get all caught up together. Right. But this isn't that. This is one word in a sentence. Yeah. Oh, I, now I'm looking at the camera. Haha. Check out this right one. Back. Yeah, right. It is a strange narrative device. And it's the only time it's happened in the first, you know, 150 pages of this book that we're in. And it sort of caught me off guard. I, I like it. It's almost like King couldn't figure out how to say, like, Sarah's a very attractive woman. And when she's thinking about Johnny and getting worked up, like, I want you to know she's getting worked up, right? Mm -hmm. Anyhow, let's face it, gang. Sexy. I like it. What other fun stuff do you have? So the other fun stuff I wanted to call out is that at one point, Johnny's dad, Herb, says by nook or by crook. And every other time I've ever heard this expression, it's always been by hook or by crook. Just like in The Prisoner, mm -hmm. which you and I are big fans of, and it's probably going to be the subject of our next podcast series. Um, so which is it? Is it both? Is it either? Or did King just get this wrong? I have a feeling King just got it wrong. Because if you put in by nook in Google, you do not get any sort of autofill or anything else. But by hook, you get by hook or by crook. And that's how I've always heard it as well. And I've heard it in other places, but mostly in the introduction to the prisoner every episode. That's right. I am not a number. Well, perhaps if King didn't get it right, maybe uh, his editor got it wrong. Who knows? But it's definitely not by nook or by crook. Or it could have been maybe a typesetting problem. An N is just an H with the top lopped off. Could be. Could be. Or it could be that this is meant to indicate that Herb Smith has just misheard the phrase over the years. and Yeah. Malapropism. Yeah, exactly. And, and King is further emphasizing it by like, yeah, Herb Smith is not somebody cool like Johnny who would have watched A Prisoner, but somebody who's probably watching uh, 
you know, Lawrence Welk or something instead. And so isn't familiar with the current phrases. You say that like Lawrence Welk isn't cool. Uh, he is making a comeback, I think. Going to polka your eyes out, Sean. <laughs> so as we plan on doing with the Dead Zone, our other worlds in these are going to focus on some of our favorite Christopher Walken moments over the years. So it's time for... I wanted to call out two Christopher Walken monologues. One is from True Romance, and the other one is from Pulp Fiction. And they have in common a bunch of things. One, they were both written by Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. Two, I think that they worked in tandem to put Christopher Walken back on the map. He had sort of faded a little bit in his you know, notoriety in, in Hollywood, and then out of nowhere, he shows up and does this thing in True Romance, and everyone's like, where's this guy been? He's awesome, right? And then he does almost the exact same thing in Pulp Fiction, and then it was just, I gotta have more cowbell, right? Yep. It's like everything went from there. So I think that in a lot of ways, Walken has Tarantino to thank for his return to fame and glory. I would agree. Two very good movies and uh, two standout performances by Christopher Walken. Yeah. You mentioned that his career seemed to have slid a little bit and, and he needed a little bit of a comeback. It's not that he wasn't doing work. I mean, Christopher Walken is always working. If that's one thing about the man, he's always mm -hmm. working, but maybe not always the best choices. And I'm going to pick two over-the-top villains named Max that Christopher Walken played in the 80s and early 90s. So just before the True Romance and Pulp Fiction. And one is Max Zorin in A View to a Kill, which is the last Roger Moore movie and is considered by a lot of James Bond critics as one of the worst James Bond movies. <laughs> it ended Roger Moore's career. Yeah, well, to be fair, Roger Moore was really old at that point. Mm. You know, A View to a Kill came out like right in my sweet spot. Like, I think I was like 13, maybe 11, 12, 13, somewhere around there. I mean, Duran Duran song. James Bond, Grace Jones, I was fully bought into it, so I thought it was cool at the time, but I have a feeling sure. I, I have a feeling it probably hasn't aged well, and there's definitely a lot of better James Bond movies, but Christopher Walken played Max Zorin. Interestingly, that part was offered to first David Bowie, who ended up not being able to do it, and then second Sting before Christopher Walken took it over. And I mean Sting in a James Bond movie? I would have bought that, right? Yeah. <laughs> that would have been great. When you told me this bit of trivia, I I it reset so much of my perception of, of him in that role. And it's like he is channeling both of those people <laughs> in his portrayal of Zorin in the Bond movie. Yeah. He's not just doing Christopher Walken. This is before that. I think the two monologues that I referenced are what made him the quintessential Christopher Walken that we think of today. Before that, he was a good actor. Yep. And he just like kind of dissolved into his role. But in that instance, he's like, so you offered this to Bowie and Sting? Yeah, I'm going to do Sting Bowie. And let's see what you think about that. Yep. I'm even going to bleach my hair blonde and spike it up. And you're not going to know who you're looking at. Yeah, I dig it. And then his other Max was Max Shrek in Batman Returns, who was, I think, running for mayor of Gotham or something. Like, he was obviously not the big part of that movie. We've got Danny DeVito as Penguin and Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman. And I actually don't remember a lot about Batman Returns, but he was Max Shrek in that. So two over-the-top villains named Max. The interesting thing about Max Shrek is that last name Shrek is in honor of... The ogre? No, the actor Shrek who played 
the vampire in Nosferatu, which is a inspiration for Barlow in Salem's Lot, right? Yes, very much so. So there's some there's some uh, a little bit of a uh, Dark Tower thinny there as well. So and the title of another King book that he did in collaboration with his son Owen, correct? Yes, with Dosferatu, like if Prince were to spell it right. <laughs> well, it's a vanity license plate, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, I hope you guys are having fun with this, and you should share your uh, Christopher Walken favorites with us as well. Yes, I'm sure everybody has a favorite Christopher Walken skit. Yeah, we're gonna begin to more of them. Yeah, yeah. We got more. Right in with yours. Until then, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Dead Zone, chapters 13 through 16. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. You're not going to be all flemmy from your eggnog? (laughs) Oh, I just choked on it. Is that your stomach or mine? It was mine. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I got to be very quiet right now. And then my stomach's like, nope, not going to be quiet. (laughs) I watched the waveform because I was like, damn it. (laughs)